um, you're going to be really mad at me, but you have to do that again. I looked over and my uh, my Logic Pro was just playing and not recording. <laughs> so so uh, I got Logic. the very last part of that. So I'm going to start over got one it. more time. Yeah, it's yeah. The, the worst part is I was going to use that whole confusion of your wife's name and our name as the opening of the podcast. But that's you're gone. You're in Logic. You can slice and dice as much as you want. You can, I, can, you know. I can indeed. Hold on. I'm going to take one more gander. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Brilliant, a podcast about innovation, experience, and design. I'm your host, Justin Dopp, and on this episode, we get in the game. Learn about a billion-dollar-plus industry half the population has no idea exists. Stay tuned. Do me a favor, just start talking. Uh, hello, testing. I'm talking now. How's my uh, good. throughput? good i looked over there something is being recorded thankfully (laughs) excellent so um okay so for the um hundreds of thousands of listeners to this podcast uh (laughs) why don't you just uh tell them your name and uh what you do most days when you're not talking to random podcast hosts uh i am chris arkenberg i'm a research manager uh, at deloitte in the center for tmt and that's technology media and telecommunications and in that capacity my main focus is thought leadership and eminence development for the tmt sector for deloitte Uh, and i kind of primarily focus on emerging technologies that are a little bit more than emerging that are uh you know starting to really reshape businesses within the tmt sector so it's kind of my my primary day to day is is doing a bit of market development, a bit of insights and analysis, uh, and generally trying to show where things are heading. Yeah. Speaking of that, um, I'd love to tell people about like when you, when you and I have worked together in a past engagement. At the time, you were really, uh, for lack of a better term, a contract futurist. So I just want you to tell people kind of what that means because I've brought your name up before in conversation. And they're like, what is that? <laughs> um, yeah, well, so, you know, my my career arc has been rather varied. I started in product and engineering uh, at Adobe Systems and was there for uh, a little over a decade and uh, found that I was very fascinated by the way that technology was, you know, radically reshaping the world. And I'm, I'm based out of the San Francisco Bay Area, so it was sort of ground zero. I mean, this, I started at Adobe in 99, so it was oh, kind of wow. when a lot of this, you know, major wave of transformation was really kicking off. And I naturally have sort of a systems perspective on things. I studied uh, biology at university and with an angle on neuroscience. Uh, and so I, I really gravitate towards the complexity of things. And and that got me really thinking in kind of bigger picture terms. And so when I left Adobe, I uh, spent a year with the Institute for the Future and learned a lot of the foresight methodologies and got really into that area and, you know, ended up kind of um, looking for ways to integrate that into my uh, sort of professional arc in the tech sector. And, uh, you know, that was welcome to varying degrees. I think it's fair to say that, uh, particularly in the United States, there's not there's strong interest in foresight in horizons, but there's not a lot of appetite to pay for it. Um, as contrasted to say Europe, where there's um, a very robust, um, uh, almost scholarly pursuit of the future. And, and so, you know, I, again, I tried to kind of wedge it in, and, and instead, it sort of became part of my my practice, my methodologies right. as a budding research analyst in the tech sector. I spent some time teaching that at CCA, uh, the California College of the Arts here in San Francisco, uh, in their foresight program. Um, and then, you know, given the arc of my career, I, I, 
I've done a few stints of consulting. Uh, and I found that a lot of the appetite on the consulting level, as, as me being basically kind of a cheap consultant, you know, as opposed to hiring Deloitte or something, um, <laughs> as an independent, uh, there was a lot of interest in that future perspective. Let's, and, say, let's say you were a high value consultant. <laughs> I, I, I like to think so. Thank you for the charity. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, it was, it was rather interesting because I, I there was a lot of um, demand for those perspectives on sort of a light touch, think out of the box kind of level. Um, and yet my, my employers, when I was employed, um, you know, tended to want things to be much more near term. And so to land all of this, I'm now at Deloitte, and in the last handful of years, like the future is here. Like it's all around me, right. and so I have so much time to commit to just trying to parse the present uh, in all its complexities. That really, my own sort of personal horizon has shrunk significantly. Where I'm like, I'm trying to understand what's going on right now, and that really aligns with my employers uh, and with Deloitte and its clients, who similarly they all love to think about the future. They love to get inspired by the future. But when it really comes down to it, they need things to be actionable. They need to understand um, what they can do now. Right, right. They need to, to figure out how to monetize that insight. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which kind of brings me uh, to what we're, what we're talking about today. And, you know, I think it's fair to say that the present is getting uh, ever more complicated, right? It's, we're getting more entropy in the system uh, than less. And one of those things that I, I know you're actually capable and uh, knowledgeable about, like, all kinds of issues within the telecom space and, and tech space. But what I wanted to talk to you about today is something I know you're pretty passionate about, and that's kind of the rise of esports it's it's interestingly generational i think an anecdote i have a nephew who apparently one of his teachers is a sibling of ninja oh wow (laughs) (laughs) exactly right so he comes home from school and says to my brother i can't believe it you know ninja was in our class today and (laughs) and my brother's like a ninja (laughs) and he's like like, no no i watch him on twitch you know Mm -hmm. Uh, and here you'll have to correct me because I'm also in the generation uh, that I'm about to say is blind to all of this. Um, he's a Fortnite player, is that correct? Do you know? Yes. What's fascinating to me about esports not only is how much it's it's grown and how it's really taking over and influencing a lot of different industries, but that it's purely generational, as far as I can tell. I mean, there are entire groups of people over, you know, I would say over 35 who have no idea this is happening. It's kind of invisible, generationally speaking. It is and it isn't. It's very fascinating. And more often than not, the refrain from people in, in our generation and above is, you know, it's about their kids or their grandchildren yep. uh, being, uh, you know, moving more of their lives into these worlds of, of gaming, following esports athletes very closely. And and there really, there certainly is a demographic bulge there. Right. Uh, and advertisers and sports franchises and uh, media broadcasters are, are very keen to, to access that and they and they see that as a characteristic of esports and the broader video game uh, market at Deloitte we we have a digital media trends survey that we do every year and it's a, a big broad analysis of how people are engaging 
with media. And one of the interesting things that we've sort of seen, this has been going on, I think, for 13 years now. In the last few years, these generational differences have started to break down. So uh, particularly like the Gen X layer, uh, there is a lot more overlap Right. with millennial behaviors, with Gen Z behaviors, uh, so much so that we're starting to think of these more in terms of behavioral profiles yep. than necessarily generational profiles or demographics. And even at the, the boomer tier and, and what we call matures, which is you know kind of a, even above boomers. The greatest generation, if you will. It, 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 yes, thank you. Um, you know, even amongst those uh, generations, Generations, there's more and more adoption, and, and and frankly, for me, it really is about adoption. It's it's just that everybody's got smartphones, you know, for at least most of the the industrialized nations. Everybody's got smartphones. Everybody's got internet and the web. Uh, everybody learns about these things. Um, you know, the console gaming market, the PC gaming market has had decades to expand. So it really is just reaching more and more people. I mean, our generation, Generation X, we all grew up with arcades right. and then consoles. And then, you know, and then we've seen the rise of Playstations and so on. And uh, it's... It's something that's kind of a part of our lives as well. And so we see more and more of, of particularly Gen X, uh, starting to get uh, interested in esports and interested in the video games that, that esports lives on. Yeah, and I mean, I kind of understand um, the fascination with watching someone really good doing what they're really good at. That part I totally get. What just surprised me is how quickly it came on and how, again, under my radar. So could you maybe give us a little bit of history on not just video games, but really kind of the esports movement mm -hmm. and that it's like an organized league in, in many cases around these different games. Just how did that come about? And, you know, what do you know about that? I think there's a few key threads. So there's just simply the ability to do multiplayer. Um, and that's been developing since the days of doom uh and yeah. quake uh you know kind of the the mid 90s um maybe even prior to that and you used to have to cable all of that you know it was all land-based and essentially that capability just the the technology underneath it got so much better you yeah. know you can you can do this over the air now you can do it uh non-locally so the ability to have you know, more than one person in a game world, um, that has just gotten bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger to where you can now have very large populations essentially uh, distributed in these game worlds at the same time. You can sync it all and you can do it globally. So, so that's one factor. There's this kind of technological arc that's just been steadily expanding along with computation, along with graphics, along with the internet. And then there's kind of uh, this sort of other thread, which really started in Asia. Um, and my understanding is... is you know, South Korea was kind of at the forefront of this, yeah. um, you know, with the StarCraft Absolutely. and uh, some of the um, the strategy games. Uh, and even, I think in, was it 2014, South Korea was packing 50,000 fans into a stadium to watch other people play esports. China has similarly expanded really quickly um, over the last handful of years um, and you know has become kind of the largest market for this stuff on the planet. Esports themselves as a thing have, have been happening probably for at least 
maybe 10 years now um, yeah. globally and it's now kind of crashing on the shores of the west and it's been led by you know a lot of the major game franchises uh, expanding to have uh, multiplayer competitive capabilities and then bolting on you know ways to monetize all of that stuff and as that has expanded the sports franchises broadcasters advertisers are all starting to you know just over the last really two years the numbers have started to become really exciting to them um, and as we mentioned before the demographics are really appealing to them as well you know one of the, the characteristics of younger generations is that they're not as inclined to watch tv and they're as not as interested in traditional sports and the numbers aren't huge right now but they're on a curve you know that are heading in a direction that is um distressing <laughs> to the incumbents yeah you know and so they're you know a lot of the major sports franchises are moving into to esports um and the broadcasters and advertisers are kind of following so so again it, it, it's been building for some time on various fronts and and now it's becoming apparent in western markets yeah and let's you know you mentioned the numbers a couple of times um could you give us a sense of, you know, the order of magnitude of the numbers that we're talking about? And maybe if you have some, like, in relation to NFL or NBA or something like that. I know it's not the same thing, but it's shockingly uh, generating advertising markets and product placement markets that are beginning to rival those, as far as I understand. But I'm going to leave it to you to let me know if my inclination is true there. Yeah, I mean, it's esports by numbers is still a relatively small market i mean they're um it's anticipated to become sort of a billion dollar industry by some measures uh this year and you know that's it's a significant number but i think the right. the closest of the top four sports is hockey and and hockey is still uh, i think maybe four billion at the moment although don't necessarily quote me on that I, uh, i'll try to I, look I, it up I, later but i won't add it to the podcast but i'll look it up <laughs> so esports is, is really it's, it's approaching a billion dollars the global video game market is about 135 billion dollars right. as of 2018 um, and those are pretty significant numbers for large companies that that are eager to invest um it, it's certainly growing and i think it's it's that curve that's that's most interesting is the the year over year growth is is considerable and it's grabbing a lot of audiences um, right. it's grabbing a lot of views on these platforms and and we kind of talked about the, the demographic value of those audiences, but the leading battle royale platform that, uh, you know, you, you talked about Ninja, and it itself is a bit of an outlier because it's such a phenomenon. They're claiming 250 million registered um, spring of 2019, about 80 million active monthlies, um, and they get about 10 million concurrent players, like 10 million people playing uh, Battle Royale. As far as I understand, their revenues are well over 100 million a month, right? It's like 300 million a month you know, for a, a free-to-play game. Yeah, yeah for people month. buying outfits and things like that, right? Yes, and that has really interesting implications, which I imagine we'll get into um, later in this discussion. <laughs> and that platform, again, it's it's a bit of an outlier because the numbers are so high. There's it's a phenomenon right now. It, you know, there's a lot of questions of is this a fad? But there are a number of other major platforms, battle royale, shooters, fighters, that are all you know similarly aggregating really large amounts of 
of players um, right. and and monetizing those very effectively. They've crested a billion for a number of these free-to-play games. So <laughs> I uh, was reading an article about the way that payment algorithms for streaming music services work has changed the way producers create songs, meaning like hmm, they mm-hmm. will jump into a chorus within <laughs> milliseconds of this track starting, right? Because mm-hmm. if they don't play for... I forget it, you know, 30 seconds or something, they don't get credit, right? And so mm-hmm. they want to make sure that no one hits that skip button. So this the, the era of the, you know, 35-second uh, introduction to a song has effectively been killed off, right? So my point being, in your opinion, how do you think that this change in the way people are, one, interacting with video games and, and doing the more the multiplayer kind of universe battle royale type games is affecting development streams. Is it radically changing the types of games we're seeing being developed or invested in? Or is it just another thing they're doing? Particularly battle royale is having an outsized disruptive impact on the leading game publishers. Um, so pretty much all of the top franchises now have introduced or are in the process of introducing their own um, battle royale modes to their franchises because they are, you know, in a sense chasing the, the impact of some of these new disruptors these new battle royale leaders and also you know of course seeing the monetization capabilities and this and this speaks to some broader shifts in the video game market um there's still some franchises that are very true to kind of the single player narrative experience where it's you're kind of buying a 60 hour movie in a way that you star in and that will continue to be popular but even in those worlds there's you know, they almost always now have a multiplayer component. They have a durability built into them, where previously you would build a game title, you might spend three years building it, and you'd stick it in a box and release it as a version. Yep. And then spend another three to five years doing the next version of that. And it was a one-time fixed purchase, right. essentially. And the big shift has been to keep these things alive. Uh, so you, you build the game world, you deploy it, you know, you might have a single-player story, but then you have this multiplayer element right. that stays alive. And within that multiplayer element, another big shift is the rise of digital distribution, the fact that you can download the game, and then you can download additions to the game. You can download new missions, you can download new levels, you can download gear, and uh, in the case of some of the new uh, Battle Royale games, you can download gestures and uh, clothing or virtual goods. Uh, potentially copyrighted dance moves. Potentially copyrighted dance moves, which we have, have seen. And yeah. at the same time, you know, um, branded jerseys for your favorite esports team or player. Right. Um, and all this, of course, is at a point of sale that's governed by the, the publisher. So there has been you know these these shifts to create these durable platforms rather than single releases that might have a large narrative story but then continue to live as a multiplayer landscape and then more recently that multiplayer landscape is now including um, a battle royale element or some other competitive feature set that is geared towards this type of esports landscape to your original question it appears that this has had really a, a major effect on the game the major publishers and and when you look at their earnings more and more the earnings are referring to their esports uh, revenues they're referring to their dlc revenues and to their uh user counts what's really kind of fascinating uh, to me about this is as much as this has gotten into the general public now i see coming online all of the kind of cloud-based 
rendering, right? So moving the graphics card off your mm -hmm. local device into a cloud-based service, that's going to have a much more egalitarian impact, right? On on high quote high-end gaming, right? You can do it anywhere then, right? So you don't you don't have the advantage at your PC that you used to have against a guy on a phone. You're you're both getting the same kind of network latency and rendering issues, and you know which of course brings the 800-pound gorilla of Google into the mix. I'm sure you can't talk about Google per se. <laughs> <laughs> but let's say, you know, large competitors coming in, how do you think that might affect the way that these leagues or development houses really look at how they approach the market? It's really interesting. And there are a number of large players that have had significant announcements in this space um, this year. Uh, and there are a number of players that have been delivering this capacity for a few years now, um, both domestically here in the United States and uh, overseas and in, in Asia in particular. It's it's interesting for a number of reasons. One, there's sort of the, it's a bit of a holy grail, just like ray tracing, you know, real-time ray tracing rendering has yeah. been a bit of a holy grail that's just about to crack open. Being able to, like you say, be sort of agnostic of the endpoint. Yeah. Um, it's kind of this old sci-fi notion that, you know, all of our screens are just sort of dumb terminals looking into the cloud and the cloud well, it's also the 19, what, 1955 <laughs> repackaged, yeah. right? Yeah. The mainframe and then all the dumb terminals. So there's a lot of promise to it and sort of the next factor on that is what type of games can effectively be delivered over the current technology right how well can you push you know a very very robust graphics pipeline over the air in a way that the latency is so small that it's you know on the order of milliseconds like a few milliseconds that um a fast-paced game with very rich graphics can stay in sync for many, many users across many, many different types of networks. Which is to say that it's it's an ambitious effort, and some games lend themselves to that. And what we've seen is a very large boom in mobile gaming as the market expands. So there hasn't been a collapse in PC gaming or console gaming. It's just that now a lot more people are gaming because of their smartphone. And a lot of those games probably can be delivered over the air pretty easily. So, so there's kind of the technological challenges and what types of gameplay will really work for that right now what might take a few years or more to be able to fit into that type of delivery system the other side the other element to this that i find particularly intriguing is uh, sort of the way it it impacts the competitive landscape because right now the game publishers have a lot of control over their platforms um, and you know we're seeing this with leagues and with esports and it's kind of a different world you know anybody can play basketball and call their game a basketball game but you know only the game publisher can own their game franchise right. and so they they have a lot of power and they, they're they're able to set a lot of the terms around that and in many ways they can kind of control the distribution themselves and so when you have these large players coming in essentially offering to do the heavy lifting of over the air you know rendering yep and streaming that poses some value to the publishers who might want to try to do that, but it also poses some risk right? Um, in that they have to kind of give up some of their control over delivery. And, you know, as we've seen with the media landscape, there's a lot of value in controlling your content delivery. Yeah, if you can um, control the, the yeah, what, where the eyeballs are looking, right, that the content becomes a little secondary, right? 
and the data behind it. So yeah. being able to get the analytics of who's doing what, what your views are looking at, you know, what's actually happening in the game world. So yeah, if you getting, have a third back party to the in between monet- that. Yeah, getting back to the monetization part of that. Yeah, there may be some risk to game publishers if they think that a cloud streaming partner is going to be able to get potentially more analytics, especially of a heavily data savvy cloud streaming provider <laughs> um, that could start to you know create their own competitive value around being able to see the data throughput. Yeah, it's interesting. And what I think is also interesting is by working these issues out for multiplayer gaming, right? You're, you're actually working out latency and um, temporal consensus for audiences that should be able to you know, be fungible into, you know, less game-like experiences, right? So I'll be curious to see what happens with, the, you know, kind of growth of AR and kind of more ubiquitous augmented reality computing that, mm-hmm. that how do you, you know, building that consensus reality is not going to be a new challenge. It's going to be a, a, a moved challenge. Yeah, you know, there's a, a real kind of fragmentation issue here that's, um, you know, particularly relevant to the media landscape. And it, and it ties into this idea of cloud streaming. And, um, you know, what we're seeing, at least in some cases, is that these are tied into um, streaming video platforms, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, have taken a very large role within these these esports and video game ecosystems. And so there's sort of the value offered of streaming this content, but then you have these audiences that are aggregating around thousands, if not millions of individual broadcasters on social streaming platforms. And, you know, as we've seen with some of the recent announcements, there's this idea that, you know, if you're watching a stream of a game, you can then click on that stream on the the social streaming property and then automatically be dropped into an instance of the game. and that's you know super fascinating from all sorts of different angles, but it also shows a, an increasing capture of, of value and access, and being able to convert attention into you know other types of experiences and other points of monetization. So, if you put on your futurist hat, if you look out five years, what are the things you'd be most excited to see out of this? My sense of what's happening here is that esports and the top competitive video game platforms or even just immersive video game platforms that these are actually becoming the next generation of social networks and they're highly virtualized social networks they're becoming very avatar based the avatars now are becoming more personalized you can dress them you can you know have particular gestures and and emotions and that in five years time it's going to be understood that that's what's happened that we have generations particularly younger generations that are increasingly comfortable potentially addicted to a highly virtualized immersive uh, occasionally competitive social media landscape or social media worlds for lack of a better term some of the the most vr adoption is happening along gaming it's still pretty small but you could see that accelerating as the generations of hardware accelerate so that the immersion becomes even greater um, I've, I've seen some evidence to suggest that while folks in our generation have difficulty in staying in virtual environments for very long you know ergonomic challenges um, that younger generations do not report that as much um, that they may be more naturally attuned to that or just getting used to it at an earlier age or they have much better backs and eyesight Uh, yeah you know good luck when they're (laughs) my age 
Um, and they realize that all the kids can completely smoke them in any competitive game. So I think this is going to be very apparent within five years. It would be my sort of loose prediction, barring, you know, whatever outliers might knock this stuff sideways. And, and so we're starting to see some regulatory response, particularly in more advanced markets like China is paying a lot of attention to how this impacts everything from ergonomics and uh, eyesight to social cohesion, which is a you know very animating factor of their landscape. And I suspect we'll start to see that in the West too. I mean, all, already you're starting to see things like, I think it was the, the shooter that was involved in the esports uh, oh, track. Tragedy. Yeah, in Florida. Yeah, that there were ties back to a particular, a popular messaging platform that is, you know, used by a lot of gamers to kind of coordinate and find each other and chat in game. And, you know, so these are all vectors for bad ideas right. and in, influence by uh, adversarial parties. Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up. I have a couple of acquaintances who attend this conference in Chicago every year that is focused on just technology, where it's going, etc. And there's a large group of movers and shakers that d- descend. And both of them have relayed to me that this year, there were a lot of people and people that all of us would know asking if they did the right thing by creating these technologies, which I found a fascinating kind of self-questioning. Um, I mean, I mean, I'm a firm believer, right, that a tool is just a tool and we, we owe ourselves as a society to start understanding and teaching our children how to behave within these worlds and tools. But it was something I didn't expect, right, that kind of self-effacing questioning from, you know, these are a lot of people, most of them actually not from Chicago. They're, you know, again, like I said, people you've heard of from the Valley and, you know, MIT, so... It's fascinating. You know, to my mind, this is all very natural. It's the shift into the internet and into mobile instantaneous global communications is really young. You know, we've really only been in this space since the late 90s and arguably adoption really didn't take off until the iPhone came around. So it's just over 10 years, maybe 15 years yeah. for e-commerce and that sort of thing. And yet it's you know the, the fastest adoption rate of any technologies uh, in history. And so we're really just trying to catch up with the implications of it all. We, as a species, are, are great at adopting things. We're great at responding and mitigating the threats when they present themselves, but we're not the best planners, and we don't have a whole lot of foresight. It's just not how we're wired as, you know, <laughs> essentially animals trying to survive in the world. You always look for the threats, and then you respond and adapt as quickly as you can. Yeah, but in this case, we're kind of the proverbial frog in the pot, right? The temperatures keeps, uh, keeps getting turned <laughs> up slowly. Well, it's the nature of um, digital systems and platforms that they're able to reach hyperscale uh, distribution. You know, so the the yeah. largest businesses are now data businesses, um, internet businesses that have displaced the the energy businesses of the last century, and they've been able to scale so rapidly. And I think you know. I think the reason that you're hearing this sort of self-awareness is because it's just really in the air. I mean, the regulations are coming down the pipeline. They're already hitting some geos. There's a lot more discussion about the competitive advantages they're able to um, be accrued through these, uh, you know, very data-driven network hyperscale strategies uh, and what the implications are of 
all of this data collection and how it's handled and stored and, and who has access to it. Um, again, social media is you, you aggregate everybody onto programmable platforms and surprise, surprise, people start programming them and right. influencing behaviors. And so it, it's really just, I think that it's just in the air that we're realizing what we've built and now we need to kind of reckon with it. Right. So you think about the video game industry, you write about the video game industry. What do you play? <laughs> um, I play, so I'm not as into the online competitive stuff. I love the large open sandbox games. I'm a, a render geek. You know, I some of my early work at Adobe was in 3D modeling and world building. And um, so I just, I love a rich living world, a virtual world that I can just run around in. And I can either pick up missions and follow the game to its end. And yet whenever I want, I can, you know, oh, the sun is setting. I should climb up onto a, a hilltop somewhere so I can get a really nice view and watch the rendering of the, the sunlight through the weather systems and the, uh, you know, all the little bugs and debris that they can render now in the, the blowing of the reeds and the trees. And I just, I, I love the... Um, the world um so i uh, i'm not sure i can speak specifically to games but i I do tend to play the leading franchises that have the large um worlds there's a, a a beloved japanese franchise that has been around for many years that um had a you know a breakthrough open world version that they released a year or two ago yeah um and i just adore that my wife and i just got back from tokyo for our third visit so i'm a bit of a japanophile you know we went to the the ghibli museum for miyazaki for you know all his films and um in this particular japanese video game franchise that i won't name um very (laughs) much has that those tones but i also like the you know pretend you're a shadow operative for the u.s government in some latin american (laughs) country and you have to topple drug lords or whatever you know (laughs) (laughs) you know like a saturday like every saturday Saturday. you know yeah running around a city and getting in car wrecks and baiting uh local law enforcement into bad behavior and so I'm going to wrap this up soon because I know we're taking a lot of your time already. But I was doing a little bit of research and I and I was thinking about the last time I heard these same predictions, and that was around Second Life. Mm, oh yeah, <laughs> uh, and it just went back and uh, it's still there. So oh yeah, it's still there. And and uh, even prior to Second Life, when I was at Adobe, I had the fortune to work on our um, Atmosphere project, and that was a 3D world building uh, editing environment that you could then publish into html as an embedded world and we had avatars and we had chat and essentially what we we worked on that for a number of years and, and what we found is that basically we ended up with a small click of users that would show up there and wear their avatars and chat and hang around and chat we didn't have a narrative structure. We didn't have a game mechanism. And and that was, you know, the same challenge that Second Life ultimately faced. They they banked on freedom that, you know, if people if you just made a place for people, they would come and then they would create the content. And the right. content that they created was really just a lot of chatting and some building. And the the big difference between that and the video game world is that the video game world starts with a narrative. 
It yeah. starts with a story. Although now that we're seeing with Battle Royale, we've kind of almost moved past that, where the, the context isn't really that important. It was like the narrative structures are what got people into the game worlds and funded the, the game publishers to then be able to evolve into, we just want to hang out and battle with each other. Right. and build teams and, and have pure competition. And that's why it's it's more like a, a proper sport now, because it's not narrative-driven. Or rather, the narrative now is personality narratives. Right. It's the, the top players and what their stories are, um, very much like traditional sports. So it's kind of this, this industry. Second Life... You know they they are still around, and I think they're they're figuring out ways to you know continue to add value. But it's a real challenge when you don't have that that anchor, and you you either don't have enough people to compete with each other and have a competitive structure, um, or you don't have a compelling narrative to draw them in. So I'm gonna put you on the spot for one last thing to leave people with. So uh, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, the movie The Graduate. Uh, when Benjamin Braddock uh, talks to the family friend, and the family friend says to him, Benjamin. As you go out into life, I want you to remember one word, right? He says plastics. <laughs> so from your perspective in, in this world that we're talking about today, if you could uh, have everybody focus on one word, what would that one word be? One word. Um, you know, I'm just going to go with the first thing that came to mind, and then I'll try to figure out why it came to mind. Um, and it's social. Because I think that what social media has shown us or tapped into is just a very fundamental element of what it means to be human. And if we look over the arc of history, the technologies that have been the most durable tend to reinforce the fundamentals of human nature or the fundamentals of human existence. And I think this is what we're seeing with this current development in the video game landscape, and particularly with esports, is that it is really about socializing. And for a lot of people who play these top competitive platforms, they go there in large part to hang out with, with their friends. Yeah. And in many cases, they've never even met their friends, and their friends are scattered around the globe. But it's that social element that is really the cohesive aspect of this that really binds it all together. And I do think that, you know, again, social media, the insane adoption rate and expansion of the top platforms. You know, I think the leading platform has 2 billion users out of under 8 billion people. That is amazing when you really step back. And, And that's just on one of their platforms. They have three platforms, you know, and it's all about connection. It's all about socializing and it's about communicating and it's about transactional uh, exchanges between social groups. So I, so I, I, I think that is the animating feature underneath all of this. And it speaks to the kind of Ready Player One future that just seems more and more likely in a lot of ways. Hopefully only the good parts. Hopefully, but you know, this is the, the nature of technology, is that we always get both sides, yeah. and then we have to reckon with them. So, uh, I realized we should have done this entire interview while gaming with headsets on. <laughs> I probably wouldn't have been uh, as coherent, and I probably would have been swearing a lot more. Uh, I was going to say, yeah, we would have been swearing like uh, sailors, uh, and I guarantee uh, you would have been laughing more than me, because I also guarantee uh, I would lose. <laughs> Well, well, we'll have to try that one. Uh, we'll put that to the test sometime. Sounds good. Well, thank you so much, Chris, for joining me today. Uh, I appreciate it. And um, I appreciate you talking about all these things uh, as non specifically as your employment contract allowed. <laughs> 
Uh, Justin, thanks so much for having me. Um, it's it's great to chat with you again, um, and you know certainly best of luck uh, to you and Yanni, uh, and to all the folks uh, that uh, you know I've gotten to to meet uh, across your team. Right on. All right, Chris. Cool. All right, Justin. Thanks See again. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. Brilliant is produced by Mignani, an experienced design and strategy firm in Chicago, Illinois. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review on your podcast app of choice. To learn more, go to magnani.com. 